Good morning, Dr. Ranswans. Good morning. Okay, ready to get into some of these articles? Yeah. We've got some uh, really good ones for you today. Yep. But let's start with this one. A South Florida frontline healthcare worker got her first shot of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine when she was 36 weeks pregnant. Three weeks later, before receiving a second dose, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl who tested positive for COVID-19 antibodies, hmm. which is very interesting. So why is this such significant news? I mean, yes, it's, it's actually very exciting to know that, you know, if your pregnant mother takes a vaccine, mm. uh, that means the antibodies actually pass on to the baby in the yeah. womb. And uh, so the baby is born already having, a, you know, antibodies towards the virus. So that's exciting. So that means uh, mothers who are not pregnant yet or, or pregnant mothers, actually not only is it safe to take the vaccine, it also might protect the, the unborn baby, you know. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a good thing. It would be good to know like, how long can these antibodies Correct. last? You know, that yeah. will be something interesting to see. Because we've spoken about uh, all these before, that sometimes at some point you need booster shots. Yeah, whatnot, so, right? so we don't know uh, how long the antibody in the baby will last yeah. and whether they will need a booster or not a booster. Right now, actually, the vaccines are not indicated for children anyway. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we don't know in the future, so we wait and see. But it's very interesting to see because that means there's gonna there might be a whole generation of kids born in 2020, 2021, or well, 2021 basically, that yeah. has antibodies already. Yeah, yeah. because all their uh, mothers will probably have taken the vaccine correct yeah, yeah. Hmm. now the thing is though how does this impact expectant mothers because for the longest time everybody's saying uh, we don't know how they're gonna administer the vaccine for uh, for mothers who are expecting how yeah. does this impact so I don't know I think right now here in Malaysia they, if you're pregnant they don't actually give you the right? vaccine yeah. yeah so I think whether this will be another very interesting thing that you know if mothers who are pregnant taking it not only nothing happened to them they, you know, the baby got protected so yeah. maybe the in the future they will change again uh, and you know maybe an expectant mothers will be given the vaccine yeah, yeah because in this case the woman she was a frontline healthcare worker so she had to take hmm. that particular vaccine yeah. but right now I think we don't give pregnant mothers so but that might change now with all these new yeah. things coming out yeah gonna be very interesting yep now Dr. Raj was apparently people who start eating before 8.30am had lower blood sugar levels and less insulin resistance which could reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes according to this new study though so why is the timing of when we eat so important? I think it's uh, quite interesting because I'm not sure why the the timing is important. Specifically, eight thirty. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So you know, it's, it's I thought it's always what you eat rather than the timing. Yeah. You know, if you eat too much of high glycemic foods, then of course your insulin will go up, and mm. then your risk of type two diabetes increases. Yeah. And then if you ask fasting the whole night and uh, you know the longer you fast like intermittent fasting they actually ask you to skip breakfast correct and it's supposed to have a lot of benefits so uh, I'm not convinced that the study really was you know whether they should actually do a, more studies about it or correct, longer yeah. studies or look at what people are eating rather than looking at the time you know because yeah. right now you're not doing uh, intermittent fasting you occasionally do it uh, occasionally once in a while right and then you work a regular uh, corporate yeah. job I suppose you want to yeah, call yeah, it yeah. that yeah and uh, I mean I do take my breakfast I do take it early before 8.30 yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> right because you have to be in the office already yeah. by then so right? it's always between 6 to 7 so you have your breakfast so but what would be let's talk about a window I suppose what's the ideal window for us to have our breakfast in the morning uh, especially for someone who might be on intermittent fasting because there's this 16 hour uh, yeah. yeah so I think the, in intermittent fasting most people just skip breakfast right so that's what they do I actually don't 
Uh, oh, but I, they don't even take anything before just to get themselves ready for it. Yeah, I mean, I think they just take water. So basically, they would have probably had their dinner at whatever time, eight o'clock, mm. and then the next meal will probably be somewhere in lunch time. So they get their sixteen hours. What I normally do is I, I somehow I never like to skip breakfast. You right. Know, always the thing is, you know, the most important meal of the day. Correct. Yeah. That was. But uh, what I do is I have a very late sort of a lunch. So mm. at three, four o'clock, and then my next meal will be somewhere eight, nine in the morning for breakfast. So I do it once in a while. Maybe on weekends, right, right. So I get my sixteen hours. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think more important intermittent fasting is that eight hours that you eat is what you eat. Yeah. Because I find a lot of people tell me, oh, it doesn't didn't work for them. When you go into the history, that eight hours they eat so much <laughs> and all the wrong things that yeah, yeah. you know, it's no point doing that so-called intermittent fasting when your overall calories in that eight hours is so high. Right. So you f- give yourself a fasting break to. You know, they say to eat up the senescent cells mm. and sort of detox. Then the eight hours you still eat healthy and not overeat. Right. So then the body really can help detox and get rid of all the dead cells. So more so than when you eat, it's what you eat. Yeah, what you eat, I think, very important. Right, Dr. Rajpans, an international collaboration between Great Ormond Street Hospital, the UGL GOS Institute for Child Health and Harvard Medical School has shown that the beneficial effects of gene therapy can be seen decades after the transplanted blood stem cells have been cleared by the body. But before we even get into all of that, what is gene therapy? What they mean is the bone marrow transplant that we talk of. You know, this is uh, going on for decades now where they use uh, for treatment of especially childhood, uh, child leukemias and right, right, okay. So they basically take your uh, stem cells from your you know bone marrow and then they sort of uh, get that uh, cultured and increased in numbers and then they give it back I to see, you. I see, okay, right. So so that is basically treatment for these leukemias. Okay. And uh, I suppose once it does that, it sort of, you know, clears up all your cancer cells and also heals up your body. And, and they know that stem cells have the effect of some sort of regeneration and that probably could yeah. be going on for, you know, like they said, decades later, still some benefits. So uh, that's interesting because we always thought that, you know, once that that the stem cells have been used up to clear the, the, the disease and they themselves will you know, not have any more effect. Yeah. But that's, that's interesting that the effects last for decades. And yeah. uh, And I suppose if they can do, now since uh, bone marrow transplant is going on for many years, they should go back and look at more of these patients. And so see. bone marrow transplant, how long does that? It's painful though, right? Uh, I mean, just like any other, we used to take the bone marrow. So yeah. that's the, the rest is just uh, like normal injections. I yeah. suppose you just transfuse in. Yeah. Uh, but generally it's... Very successful with it. Very yeah. good uh, treatment for certain leukemias in the right. chi- children. They don't do so well. But in adults now, they're doing this uh, sort of therapy. Right. Uh, so, uh, but it's good to see, you know, now the effects after many years, whether there are other benefits like what this study Correct, show. Correct, yeah. And uh, it'd be good to know. Because decades could yeah. mean the rest of their life already, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But how can gene therapy be beneficial for the rest of us? I don't know. I think it's still very new. Right. And uh, we have to wait and see. But it's definitely coming. All these new therapies, you know, uh, that, you know, from looking at people, looking at your DNA and your genes. Yeah, it's a buzzword these days, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so I think this is the new therapy from nutrigenomics to pharmacogenomics and now to gene therapy per se, modifying your genes. I think the next 10, 20 years, this is going to be something that will be part of medical practice, you know. Now, a team led by researchers from the University of Surrey in Guildford, England, developed a new method to test for COVID-19, which is very exciting. The test utilizes skin swabbing, which is non-invasive. But for now, it's been going up the nose and everything, which is uh, apparently a lot of people say it's not painful, it's just very uncomfortable. 
But how is it possible to detect COVID-19 through the skin though? That's actually very interesting because I had no idea they could use skin for this. Right. I mean, you know, the secretions. So, you know, that's why they uh, use yeah. in the... You know, so, you know, they said that the deep throat the saliva. So, if you cough out from the deep throat, you can actually test for it. That's right. the other way they're looking at. Of course, the main one is the swabs through the nose. Okay. But to the skin, I don't know. Is it is it the virus can't be on the skin? So, is it been the virus been secreted through the skin? So, something very interesting and whether... You know, so far I've never heard of any test that is done to the skin for any viral uh, infections. Or even you know. other viral... Yeah, uh, we never, but we always look at uh, swaps, mostly yeah. uh, swaps or, you know, blood tests. So this is something that we have to wait and see yeah. whether they really can do and how effective is it, you know, because the most important thing is you don't get false negative yeah. tests, you know, that, oh, you just do a swap and say, oh, it's negative, but the guy might have COVID. That's yeah. why they are very important. Because then you're going walking around and yeah. you're infecting other people. Yeah, so that's why now we use PCR, which is very, you know, uh, reliable test around even the rapid antigen in hospitals. Yeah. And you know the swaps are very uh, effective, and you do nasal swaps. So I'd wait and see. Yeah. Uh, you know, people are, I'm sure, coming up with new, new tests. But whether they stand the test of time, we have to wait and see. For the nasal swab test, I mean, comparing, trying to compare the skin swab to the nasal swab. Let's just say they do find some maybe the secretions, and then they find some kind of elements that is COVID. I'm looking at accuracy because yeah. we talked about false negatives and everything. Yeah. Nasal right. swabs is still. I think it will be still the gold standard. Right. Of course, everyone wants to find a easier and a less, uh, you know, uncomfortable way of yeah, doing that I test. Yeah, I think they're more. It's more about confidence because people are so afraid to get tested because they see that thing going up their nose. Yep. Right. So, but if you got no choice, you have to do. Uh, but if if the test from the skin does prove to be reliable and it's uh, just as accurate, I think everybody will be excited. Right. So everyone should so get easier. tested. Right. You just go and get your skin tested. Yeah. You know. So How often have you gotten your uh, tested for this? So far, not yet. All right, right. So I've been lucky because, of course, we all take the right precautions. So yeah. once you are low risk, if you are wearing a mask, your patient is wearing a mask, and you know you take all the right precautions, keeping your distance, washing your hands, right. then you don't have to test you. Okay. So you're low risk. So most of us who are in the hospitals, we are exposed a lot, but we are very careful with our SOPs as they say so so we got away from getting tested in fact a lot of the doctors and nurses who got caught and who turned to be positive mm-hmm. had to do were not from the hospitals they were always from their friends outside right you know it's their friends when they went out and all and that's when friend got positive and then they got caught yeah you know but in the hospitals because everyone that's probably the is, cleanest place around yeah I mean they're very strict with all the SOPs you know so so we we follow that and normally you are low risk so nothing happens Dr. Rasmus are you a fan of cats? Uh, no I'm <laughs> more of a dog guy okay. <laughs> <like dogs. laughs> well apparently cats they may seem all soft and cuddly but their bite could pose significant health risks as cats carry many bacteria in their mouths capable of causing infections in bite wounds which can spread to other parts of the body causing conditions like septicemia but for many people they don't even know what septicemia is what is it basically when you use the word septicemia it means infection of the blood Right. So, you know, if you get any infection anywhere, let's say you've got a urine infection or a lung infection, or even a skin infection, then that bacteria or that uh, bug can actually enter in, into your bloodstream, yeah. especially in people who are poor, more immunosuppressed, you know, people who are old, people with diabetes and all those. Uh, and once you go into the blood, that means your blood gets infected and then we use the word septicemia. All right. Yeah. So, okay. or bacteremia. Bacteremia is basically you have a blood infection, but you don't have uh, the bug in the blood when you do the culture. Septicemia okay. means when you do the blood culture, you already have a bug in that blood, you know, that's already causing the infection. How in do you find, blood. how do you know someone's got septicemia? Can, is it very obvious in your... 
Ah, uh, basically, yeah, you come up with uh, you severe uh, high fevers, you know, and you got chills and rigors, and and then you're quite ill. Septic people can go into septic shock. The blood pressure drops. They're very tachycardic. They can get uh, okay, you know, symptoms like nausea, vomiting, and they're very ill. Septic right. people are very ill. They're no more just having a simple lung infection or okay. a urine infection where the symptoms are localized. Here, you got a generalized sort of a uh, febrile illness that's quite severe, and of course, we'll do the blood test. Will show very high levels of infection. You do okay. a blood culture, and that will grow the germ, right? So most people who are septicemic or in septic shock end up in ICUs, and they are actually very ill, right? You know, and, and the treatment is. Uh, uh, if it's bacteria, if it's good prognosis. High dose antibiotics, and once you get the culture, the right antibiotics will definitely cure you. Okay. Uh, of course, while waiting, culture takes about two three days. While waiting for a culture, we normally hit them hard with some broad spectrum antibiotics. Okay. And uh, once the culture comes, we know what the, the bacteria we're dealing with. Then we deescalate to. You then know, you target it there. Yeah, target it to that. Uh, so they do well, uh, but depending on your underlying immune immune system, I. I get patients who are, you know, in their late 80s, 90s who mm-hmm. get septic, and of course sometimes they delay uh, because right. they think that oh this is a simple infection. Can overcome it. Uh, overcome it. Just take some paracetamol, take some you know oral antibiotics until they get very ill. Right. And when they come, they're already very ill, and then they can succumb to the disease. You know, so succumb meaning they, fatal? they pass on. Yeah. Really. Fatal, yeah. So so this can be very serious. So uh, so even a cat biting you can lead you to yes. lead on to septicemia. Yeah. Okay, True. so cat owners uh, just be careful. Yeah, but I think this is more stray cats, though. I suppose. No, it should be. It could be any of your, even your pet cats. You have to be very careful. So even I got patients who got pet cats, uh, but who have got you know diabetes and who, who are old. Mm, oh yeah, they yeah. can come with uh, bad infections. But most of the time, these people are you know they they get a scratch, they see some infection, they come early. Right. So it's more of a local infection rather than septicemia. Okay. So it could be treated much faster. Okay. That's a scary to end the discussion today. <laughs> But thank you very much for coming in again, Dr. Rajwan. Thank you.